Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say that we have Valerie Hebert on the show, and we'll be talking about her new book, Hitler's Generals on Trial, The Last War Crimes Tribunal at Nuremberg. War, of course, is a messy affair, and it's difficult to say that there are rules at all. In the course of the 19th and early 20th century, however, Europeans had worked out a system of conventions about the way that it should be prosecuted. You're probably familiar with the Hague Conventions, for example. Well, the Germans, when they prosecuted the war in Eastern Europe against Poland and the Soviet Union, manifestly did not follow these conventions. And so after the war, they were called to account for what they had done. This is really the subject of Valerie's book. The concept of war crimes itself is is a new one, and it was just being tested out at the Nuremberg Trials. And Valerie does a terrific job of discussing the various conundra and paradoxes and dilemmas that were faced by the people who were trying to bring the Wehrmacht generals to justice. She also does a good job of talking about the way in which they fought that war, really the horrible way in which they fought that war against the Soviet Union. So I really enjoyed talking to Valerie today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further ado, here it is. Hi, Valerie. Hi, Marshall. Good morning. Good morning. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. I'm very well, thank you. I should tell our listeners that we have Valerie Haber on the show today, and we'll be discussing her terrific new book, Hitler's Generals on Trial, The Last War Crimes Tribunal at Nuremberg. I should also say that this is the third book that we've done on the post-World War II war crimes trials. We had Hillary Earle on the show and Yuma Tatani, and they talked about, respectively, uh, the Einsatzgruppen trial and then the trial of the Japanese generals. This book is about uh, the trial, uh, the subsequent military tribunal. Isn't that what it's called? Uh, yeah, they go by a few names, Nuremberg Military Tribunals or subsequent Nuremberg Proceedings. Yes, right. The, the, yeah, this one was of uh, Wehrmacht generals. So, That's uh, right. It's a, yeah, and they had a number. How many of these subsequent military tribunals were there? There were 12. 12, this was yes. The last. Okay, yes, yeah. is the last. So we'll be having 12 people on the show, I think, eventually right. for all these <laughs> military tribunals. I find them very interesting. They raise incredibly interesting questions about both the prosecution of World War II by the Japanese and the Germans, about Victor's justice, and also about international law in general. And all of these questions are brought to light and answered in a wonderful way by Valerie. And I really look forward to talking to her about the book. But let's begin the interview, if you will, by having you say a few words about yourself. Um, well, certainly. I um, was born and raised in Montreal, Quebec, uh, Canada, for our international uh, listeners. I went to McGill University for my undergraduate uh, degree and master's degree and uh, focused right away on European history, German history in particular. My father had always been um, 
interested in the Second World War. And a lot of people, when they ask me sort of how I got to where I am now, you know, where did it all start? And I have to say, I can't ever remember a time not knowing who Hitler was or what the Second World War was about. It was um, a topic of conversation around our dinner table, commonly. Um, which isn't to say I always knew I would be a historian. I, um, in fact, had a fleeting interest in photography and thought that's really where my career would would lay. And then after a disastrous interview with the Fine Arts uh, Department Admitting Committee at Concordia University in Montreal, I decided, well, my backup plan was to do history at McGill. And I went along with that. And my first year um, as a student, the movie uh, Schindler's List came out. And it was a real shock to me because I had as I said, grown up feeling like I knew more than the average person about the Second World War and about the Holocaust. And uh, the movie, for all its um, flaws, and some people have talked about those, but it, for me, it was a huge eye-opener and revealed to me, you know, just how vast and important uh, this history was. And I decided then and there that I would make a career out of studying it. And so after uh, McGill, I went on to the University of Toronto, and I worked with Michael Maris. He's an internationally renowned historian of the Holocaust. And I knew fairly early on, too, that I wanted to work on law and history and the ways in which these um, disciplines, I mean, they're both, they're both interested in the past and making sense of the past. And I was uh, fascinated uh, by the ways in which these two disciplines intersect and diverge in, in that pursuit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and how did you come to write about the general's trial specifically? Largely fluke, actually, and I credit uh, Hillary Earle with that. I, uh, my original plan was to work on denazification trials. These were the series of trials that the um, occupation powers initiated to try and root out all uh, remaining vestiges of Nazism in society, and I, you know, for one reason or another, I decided I, I thought I wanted to work on those. And then it was um, in an early conversation. I was a new graduate student to the University of Toronto, and I was uh, Hillary was a few years ahead of me in the program, and we were talking fairly casually about plans and research and that kind of thing. And I said, "Oh, well, I think I'm going to write on denazification." I said, "Oh, it's done to death. Never mind." She said, "You should work on the field marshal's case," and. I was young and impressionable, I guess, and she seemed to know a lot more about these things than I did. And on the spot, I simply switched and in my head went, all right, I guess I'll do that. And um, started digging, and it was a very happy accident. I think I just stepped in the right puddle uh, because it ended up revealing hugely fascinating questions for me um, and I think um, has has worked out well. Has has produced the stories, you know, far more interesting than I could have predicted at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that one thing I'd like you to talk a little bit about, and you, you know a lot about this, but I think that most of the listeners to this show, and certainly me, prior to reading your book and a couple of other things that I had read before, didn't know is that the trials of the Wehrmacht generals and other Wehrmacht officers after the Second World War and their incarceration, um, they were kind of hot topics in West Germany. And this is in addition to the general question about how the Wehrmacht conducted the war in the East. And I'm speaking specifically about uh, a book that I read, and it was a long time, I don't know how long ago it was, it was called, I think it was called Keine Kameraden. Do you know this book? No, it's not ringing I think that I, th I thought it was called Keine Kameraden, but anyway, it's a German book about... Uh, oh, 
of course, of course. Yes, that's um, yeah, that's um, who's that? Not Christian Strait, but um, maybe it is yes, Christian Strait. I don't know. Anyway, it might be. It might actually. It might be. It should be. Yeah, I think it might think be. It and then there was a, and then there was this touring exhibition about Wehrmacht war crimes uh, that was in nineteen. I don't ninety five. Ninety five. Exactly. Maybe yeah. you could just talk a little bit about the history of of that question. Um, well, well, that's it, and that's why this trial ended up being so interesting because. Um, you know, reading in, during my comps year, the, you know, the comps year where you, you, you read in various fields to try and, you know, become an expert, I put in quotations, in, in these various um, historical fields. You know, one, one question, I, you know, I was interested in law, I was interested in the way, you know, law and history sort of diverge in their representation of the past and the role that, that trials play in, in creating historical records. And mm-hmm. there was a very influential book for me written by um, Lawrence Douglas. He's, he's a legal scholar. And he wrote on several Holocaust-related trials and showing how each one, you know, presented a fairly clear picture to their audience about, you know, a certain aspect of this history. And these were, you know, the first Nuremberg trial, the Eichmann trial. There were a series of trials in um, dealing with Holocaust denial in Canada. And, and I mean, it was, you know, you see very clearly the connection between what went on in the courtroom and then the conversation in the public. But the question that left me with was, well, what happens when you have these trials, trials that are interested in, in saying something to a wider audience that's more than just adjudicating the innocence or guilt of the person in the dock, but trials who have this purpose of, of saying something, uh, you know, to society at large. Well, what is it that... that that ensures that connection is made. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems, very, you know, obvious to me early on that there is nothing built into the mechanism of a trial to do that. And this mm-hmm. became all the more apparent in this trial's army officers because the mandate that went behind organizing the Nuremberg trials was about not just achieving a certain measure of justice and, you know, justice, I think we have to think of more as sort of a symbolic level that, you know, so few people were called to answer for these horrific and unprecedentedly huge crimes. Um, You know, obviously there was a certain level of symbolism at play, but apart from justice, they also wanted these trials to educate the German public about the truth of their past, that they, you know, they had lived under a Nazi dictatorship, they didn't have, um, you know, fair, neutral, unbiased accounts of the news, and, and certainly, you know, they had a certain uh, resistance to admitting to the crimes that had been committed in their names, or that they had committed themselves, either through consent or direct participation. And so Nuremberg had this very uh, heavy uh, mandate to fulfill. It started with the International Tribunal, which is the, that first Nuremberg trial that most people know about, conducted jointly by the Americans, British, French, and Russians. But then the Americans wanted to continue this, not only because they had um, so many war crime suspects in their custody, but also to, to continue this mandate for education, because they hoped that through education there would be a, a greater chance for social rehabilitation, that Germany might more... Uh, be more fully converted to democracy, this might more assuredly um, establish peace, and peace, you know, not just, again, for two generations, like with the interwar period, but, you know, much farther into the future, stabilize the continent, that kind of thing. So, with the subsequent uh, series of trials, these 12 trials, what they did, what with the American planners, they divided up the defendant, the accused, the suspects in their custody, according to the 
uh, institution they represented. So as Hillary Earle wrote about the SS Einsatzgruppe and these uh, shooting squads, there was a trial of doctors who um, had conducted medical experiments in the camps, government ministers, um, the judiciary, you know, judges who had enforced uh, racial laws, that kind of thing, and then these military trials. And there were three trials dealing with the military. The one I studied, the high command case, was the most comprehensive. It, it dealt with uh, field commanders and uh, staff officers you know, throughout the entire, you know, pre-war planning stages to the end of the war and, you know, everywhere that the war was fought was, was concerned mm-hmm. with this trial. And more than any other trial, I argue, more than any other trial, it was the trial of the military that most had the potential to connect with the German public because it was the military that represented the broadest sections of the ordinary uh, German population, right? It was 20 million had served in the ranks of the military. And so if they were trying to say something about German responsibility for or complicity in um, crime, ideological crime, racial crime, then this was the trial to do it, the trial of SS, although these, you know, concerned um, egregious, unprecedented crime, uh, you know, in terms of the ordinary person's observation of this trial, well, you know, those were fanatical SS men, they were monsters, it doesn't surprise me that they did that, but we can wipe our hands, you know, they are not us, we are not them. Same thing with, you know, high government ministers or the, you know, the heads of, of German industry. These were people remote in, in power and um, in the station. And so, um, really, when we talk about, you know, fulfilling the didactic mandate of the trial, it's these military trials that come to the fore as having had the potential to, to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think, uh, not to jump too far ahead, they fail. <laughs> Just to they put do. a word on it, they fail. Uh, and we'll come they back do. to that in a second. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of the trial themselves. So they were run by Americans. Uh, the Americans had rounded up a lot of these people. How did they select whom they were going to prosecute in this particular trial, in the general's trial? Um, you know, it's a little bit of... of um sort of a mixed bag. I mean, <laughs> I had documents. They actually wanted uh, more people on the dock. Uh, some uh, defendants, for example, Manstein, um, they were in British custody. And so, I mean, as, well, perhaps I should back up, Telford Taylor, who ended up sort of spearheading the subsequent proceedings, he had um, a very senior position at the International Tribunal under Robert Jackson, who led the prosecution there. Within his portfolio, Telford Taylor at the IMT, he led the case, the institutional case for the Wehrmacht. So um, individuals were indicted at the International Tribunal, organizations were as well, and the Wehrmacht High Command was one of those organizations, and Telford Taylor was uh, in charge of that case, and that case was, was failed. The, the, high com- the tribunal did not find the High Command uh, an organization, I mean, largely on technicality, but... Suffice it to say, Telford Taylor was very disappointed. He very early on uh, recognized how important it was to place the crimes of the military on record and to speak about, you know, institutional responsibility as well as as the responsibility of individuals. And so this was always a priority for him in the subsequent proceedings. And they had a number of individuals uh, in their custody, but in the course of preparing the organization trial at the IMT, um, they, a lot of evidence had come to light, you know, implicating other uh, generals who were still alive and in other custody, but they couldn't always get them. And sometimes this was a matter of 
you know, why should we go to the expense of, you know, extraditing these men and, and trying them? Shouldn't the British, um, all, you know, to take their responsibility to prosecute them because the law um, at the foundation of these trials was um, applied to all the occupation powers. They all had the mandate and the jurisdiction to prosecute these crimes. So the Americans, you know, part of it, their feeling was not Telford Taylor. He would have, he would have uh, gladly taken them on, added them to the case, but of people around him was, well, let's just deal with the men we have in our custody. But there were mundane reasons as well. I remember reading some documents in the archives where they talk about, well, you know, we can't actually fit any more chairs in the dock. <laughs> um, you know, so and this, you see this over and over again, and, and it's always sort of, um, I think, um, a tell, you know, a, a, an important reminder to us as historians when we read these things that, you know, at the end of the day, these are still people dealing with, you know, practical yeah. limitations in, in planning these, you know, what end up being internationally significant proceedings. And yet there's still things like, do we have enough paper? Do we have enough pens? Are we going to have people enough warm bodies to staff these things? Um, and so as much as it was a matter of sort of international um, you know, politics between, you know, British and American, why should we do the British, you know, job? Um, it was also very mundane concerns as well. Yeah, well, one of the reasons I ask is that uh, there are some big names, I believe, who survived the war missing here. And I was thinking of Manstein. He's one. Guderian is another that's he doesn't get tried. And then right. um, and then Yodel, I don't know if he survived the war or not. I, I don't think Braukic did. He was did. tried in the, in the first one. Oh, first was he? Number. Okay, yes. yeah. But anyway, there are a lot of people, you know, if, if you follow World War II sort of history, there are a lot of people that are not here. And a lot of right. names are totally unfamiliar. At least they were for me, and I was kind of surprised about that. For me as, for me as well. And, you know, having come from a background trained in, in World War II, and I sort of thought, like, who are these people? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it, it was a surprise for me as well. And yet, when you start you know, digging, you realize just yeah. you know, the, the level of authority and command that they enjoyed. Uh-huh. I see. So there was no intention here to try everyone who possibly could have been convicted. This was simply no. a selection for a didactic purpose. Is that it right? It was. Yeah. It was. It was. I mean, it wasn't arbitrary um, entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I mean, they had to be in custody or, or locatable. Um, and, you know, if they were in another occupation zone, they didn't, in the end, mm-hmm. want to make, you know, effort to, to bring them out. But, no, and I mean, that's a you know, tension you see running through the trial as a whole, this idea that, you know, these are 14, ultimately 13 individuals. We're trying, I mean, it's their criminality that we are trying to decide here. At the same time, they couldn't get away from the fact that, well, we are saying things about the institution as a whole and things that will be, we hope, impressed upon German society as a whole. But you see this over and over again, that in, in some respects, the the individual identity of the defendant seems to recede in importance, and it's it's what's being said about the institution as a whole that mm-hmm. that really has the most to say in terms of the you know the trial's didactic value. How did the Americans meet the objection that this kind of trial of military men in the prosecution of a war was without precedent, and that more generally one might easily say, well. Uh, this was, in fact, a military conflict, and in military conflicts, these kinds of things often happen. And prior to this moment, no one had ever been held responsible for this sort of thing in World War One or the American Civil War, the Crimean War, or the Napoleonic Wars. There had never been a prosecution of um, military officers for these kinds of things. How did they meet that objection? 
Um, a number of ways. I mean, they, they were very quick to resort to certain, I mean, this was international law in its infancy. You know, there wasn't, you know, a long, you know, jurisprudential history for them to draw on. I mean, they were, um, at the same time, it wasn't entirely absent either. They had things like the Hague Convention and the Geneva Conventions that regulated, you know, conduct and war, treatment of civilians, POWs, that kind of thing that they could draw on and, and that the Germans themselves were signatories to. And they said, well, you agree to this. Um, there were, I mean, there were international treaties, you know, like the Locarno Treaty, uh, Kellogg-Briand Pact, things that had, uh, you know, declared war sort of, you know, beyond, um, accept, you know, in terms of, you know, what was acceptable in, in solving political um, problems or political differences, while well, war was sort of placed beyond, you know, um, any measure of resort. And so, you know, they were able to point to certain elements existing either in customary uh, international law or, you know, declared uh, formalized treaties, conventions, that kind of thing. And so, I mean, there was some foundation to build on. But what you see over and over again is we can't not respond to this. And what we are confronted with in this war when it comes to, you know, the civilian loss of life and, you know, the, the unprecedented uh, brutality and cruelty with which POWs, Soviet POWs were treated. I mean, this, this requires some kind of response and one can't help but recognize that this is criminal. And it didn't necessarily, because it was motivated by Nazi ideology, I mean, it's because it's, it's still murder and abuse and neglect, and these officers had a duty as professionals to, ex you know, extend their protection to these people, you know, for many reasons. Um, so it was like, you know, in the international law cries out for a statement about this, you know, that sort of in our guts we recognize this is criminal, this is the opportunity to make it so. And, you know, this idea that, well, you know, wars, all wars are terrible and terrible things happen in all wars. Um, you know, there's certainly, and this was uh, an issue that came up in, in the Americans' other series of trials, the Army trials held at Dachau, and where, you know, one case in particular, the Malmody trial, where uh, it was an SS contingent murdered a bunch of American soldiers in Belgium. And they said, you know, isn't this just sort of, you know, heat of the moment? You know, this was one case where it just seemed like, you know, we can find analogous cases of Americans murdering Germans or, you know. Um, so there are instances where you can say, well, yes, the Americans were not blameless. They were not absolutely, you know, they did not conduct the war, you know, um, without any, you know, overstepping of these bounds. They, you know, the Soviets as well. I mean, the Soviets also were brutal in their treatment of, of German prisoners of war, but the scale is different. And when one also takes into account uh, the reasons behind these, and this is where, you know, when I said before that they weren't convicted for being Nazis, and they weren't Nazis in any formal sense. Uh, they weren't members of the party or anything. At the same time, when one looks at the array of crimes, at the identity of the victims, and at the numbers of victims, you one can't help but recognize that these crimes were committed in pursuit of these ideological, racial, political aims. And so I think that was... Um, that required a response and that, and that goes far beyond battle frenzy or heat of the moment that, you know, these things were premeditated and that's, you know, the, um, 
the trial spent uh, so much, had such a heavy reliance on the criminal orders, orders that were, and policies that were decided upon and put in place uh, far in advance of the actual hostilities to show that these were not simply a byproduct of war and a sort of an unavoidable but um, albeit awful consequence of war, that these were intentional results. And, you know, that's where the criminality and that's that's what requires the judicial response. Uh, well, one of the things that interests me, though, is that um, while I agree with you from my perspective, it does require a response. I, I'm wondering whether that's just not an American perspective because the British didn't seem to think so. Did they? No, but, you know, the British... There's a there's a few there's a long history with the British. They had tried after the First World War to prosecute, um, well, to indict, and they they had hoped for international trials of of German war criminals of the First World War, and they were, you know. Although there were a number of, of uh, countries willing to join in these efforts, they were very quickly sort of left on their own, and it was um, you know, they were left holding the bag and doing this, and had a very weak position to actually press these demands, and eventually had to concede to the German demand to hold these trials themselves. And the trials were a farce, and um, and you know the very few convicts that resulted from these proceedings were you know escaped. I put in quotation marks from prison, and you know practically given parades. And so the British had a very bad taste in their mouth about trials. You know, they thought, you know, you know, in the planning stages, they were very reluctant, very slow to come around to this idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not as if I shouldn't, uh, if I recall correctly, it's not as if they didn't believe that some justice should be meted out. I think Churchill, for example, simply wanted to shoot the lot of them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, why are we bothering with all this trial? Why not? You know, political decision. It's over and done with. We can get on with things. Yeah. On with you know, restoring the peace and rebuilding our countries. And perhaps too, that reflects you know the Americans. I mean, they didn't. Um, they weren't bombed. You know, they weren't an occupied country. You know, it, it might have been far easier for them to say, well, you know, let's spend a little more time in dealing with this because they didn't have the same level of. Reconstruction to deal with on their own territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, let's move on just a little bit. What were the Wehrmacht generals charged with specifically? Um, oh, the, it's a long list. <laughs> you can, um, if you give us a very long, give us an abbreviated version of it. Yeah. Abstract it. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Uh, well, I mean, the four main counts. You know, the Nuremberg, um, as Nuremberg defined, sort of summarized Nazi crime was the crimes against peace, crimes of aggressive war as opposed to defensive uh, war. Um, war crimes and crimes against humanity. Uh, at the first trial, these things were separated. In the trial that I studied, these were grouped and then divided according to whether the targets of these crimes were civilians or uh, belligerents. So these included things like um, the murder, ill-treatment of prisoners of war, uh, reprisals against uh, partisans, um, suspected or you know actual partisans um, measures designed to terrorize and intimidate civilian populations in the course of occupation things like the night and fog decree where suspected uh, resistors or dissenters would simply be taken out of their homes in the you know the dark of night in order to terrorize their family you know never to be heard from again um, draconian hostage reprisal policies if a German soldier was injured or killed you know, in an act of sabotage, um, or, you know, their material was, was, uh, damaged, you know, 50, a hundred civilians per German, uh, would simply be rounded up from the community and executed. And, and, you know, 
in the orders themselves, you know, they say things like, these should be community leaders, these should be, you know, so that the rest of the society notices and, and understands and is terrorized in order to increase the, the terrorizing effect. You actually see this kind of language in the orders. Um, of course, I'm, I'm not going by order of importance, but no, uh, the, the Wehrmacht's um, involvement in uh, supporting or participating in the murder of Jews. You know, people, I think in the public imagination, you think Holocaust, you think gas chambers at Auschwitz and trains, but the first um, stage, we can say, of the Holocaust were, as Hilary Earle writes about, were these massive um, open-air shootings that um, SS uh, shooting squads followed the army in to the east as it acquired territory, rounding up, behind the lines, rounding up. Um, not just Jewish uh, civilians, but all, you know anybody deemed an enemy of the state, whether they're communist or you know, um, or Jewish or what have you, and round you know shot them en masse. And so you know all the orders around that formalized the army's um, um, relationship and uh, support of participation in um, these actions. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also um, things will come to me. I mean, there's so many more. Oh, uh, the army's support for the slave labor mm-hmm. um, system. The um, the Reich exploited the the labor of uh, conquered territories, whether, you know, Jewish but also non-Jewish Slav, for example. And uh, the army, you know, played a pivotal role in in gathering up these people and um, you know shipping them off to whichever destination where they would serve as slave labor. Um, I mean, that's just a sampling of, of the crimes against uh, belligerents and civilians. These, most of these crimes took place in the East, I should say, although the crimes did cover, you know, the entire geography of the war. Um, the Army's most brutal and uh, horrific conduct uh, happened in the East, and this has to do with the ideology behind the war in the East. This was, you know, um, defined as, described as a clash of two civilizations. It was a war to destroy, not just to to conquer, but to destroy um, Bolshevism and to destroy, I mean, to create in the East a new German nation where the Slavs, you know, those that survived would simply serve as slave labor mm-hmm. to increase, um, you know, the the prosperity of, of um, you know, German colonizers to the East. This was very different from their approach in the West. I mean, for for Hitler, Germany's future always lay in the East. He had to fight the West by necessity, and even, you know, just in order to free himself up to conquer the East. So most of these crimes took place on, on territories in the East. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want you to talk about a couple of um, documents, actually, and their genesis, because you can actually learn a lot about the... Um, way in which the pretext under which the Germans conducted this war of destruction in the East by, I think, looking at these documents. And the two documents I had in mind uh, is, are the, um, the, um, the Commissar Order. Um, mm-hmm. And then the second one that I want you to talk about a little bit is the, uh, and I wasn't really familiar with this one, I'm surprised, the um, Barbarossa Justification Order. Barbarossa Jurisdiction Order? Jurisdiction Order, yes, that's it. Jurisdiction right. Order, yes, that's right. I don't know right. what order you want to talk about those, but they're, they're very curious documents. And also they were redacted a little bit by, um, the, uh, by the generals themselves or by Brauchich or I can't remember exactly who got his hands on them. But maybe you could talk a little bit about their genesis and what they said. 
Right. Well, I can start with the commissar order. The commissar order ended up being sort of a cornerstone of the whole trial because it was so unambiguously criminal. Um, you know, in deciding whether whether these orders were criminal or not, and whether um, the defendant should be held guilty for having implemented them, the the principle that sort of emerged and came to be applied is sort of the deciding principle was this what was called the manifest illegality principle. So, in terms of you know. Armies are, are structured on um, on a chain of command, and so you know these as senior as they were in rank. They said, "Well, these were still orders that we received, and we were duty bound to enforce them." And this, you know, it was a principle within the German Penal Code itself that if an order is illegal on its face, no one is is uh, required to carry it out. In fact, you are you know you can be punished if you do. If it's if it's you know so clearly illegal on its face, you're under no obligation to obey it. And the, the commissar order was a perfect example of that. So the commissars were those members of the Red Army, the Soviet Army, who uh, essentially acted as uh, political, ideological morale keepers for their comrades. So they you know, schooled them in, in uh, communist Soviet doctrine, you know, even you know, during battle. At the same time, they were soldiers themselves. They wore the uniform, they carried weapons, they fought at the front in the same way as, as any regular soldier would. But... Um, when you know, as I just described, when when the Nazis were, when Hitler and um, you know other officials of the regime were planning the war, I mean, this from the beginning, Hitler's I, you know, he wanted to crush Bolshevism. This was seen as the threat to Germany, and and you know the Jews were sort of part and parcel of that, assumed to be you know intimately connected and extractively connected with that ideology. And so, you know, this manifest, this desire to destroy Bolshevism manifested itself in many ways. I mean, you know, very simply initiating the war with the Soviet Union, but then also in the way it was prosecuted. And so um, the Commissar is an example of that. So the idea was as um, Soviet prisoners would come into German custody, these Commissars were to be identified and um, liquidated immediately, either by the army itself, more at the beginning, the idea is that they would then be, you know, identified to other police groups, SS groups operating, you know, within the same area of command, area of operation, uh, and they would dispose of them. But, you know, you would see example after example where the army simply did it themselves. Um, but, you know, this was this was clearly criminal, um, and yet one found it uh, um, enforced over and over again in, in the defendant's areas of command. But it was one, it was one order that it was so clearly uh, illegal uh, that it was sort of an open and shut case. If they could find that this order had passed through, you know, such and such a defendant's hands and then that, you know, field reports confirmed the execution of the order, well, that was clearly a crime. Mm-hmm. And now, if I could just uh, ask you to pause right there before we talk about the uh, Barbarossa jurisdiction order. Sure. Um, what, what office... I guess in the high command issued the commissar order. What, what is its genesis, and, and oh, who actually touched it and redacted it? It came from uh, Walter Varlamov, who was, um, you know, second or third away from a very senior staff officer uh, in the high command. Um, worked closely with Yodel, worked, you know, closely with Keitel. Um, so I mean, and this was, and this was, you know, the important connection that the trial was seeking to make, and sort of, you know, telling this the story of, you know, how and the how and whys of of the Wehrmacht's responsibility for Nazi crime was, you know, Hitler had these ideas 
you know, these goals, these ideas. Um, and yet it was people like Barlow that actually translated these ideas and these goals into orders that could be passed down the chain and executed on the ground level. Mm-hmm. So he was, I mean, he was uh, uh, one of the key defendants in the trial. It was him. Mm-hmm. When, uh, it, when the order came down, how did the, uh, the officers of the Wehrmacht respond to it? Do we have any evidence of that? Do we know what we they do. said about it? We do. And I mean, some of it has to be taken with a grain of salt. I mean, some of them said this is clearly criminal. This is criminal, you know. Uh, and yet some of them, we have to assume, went along with it, you know, depending on their own uh, ideological sympathies. But, um, you know, there were some that say, oh, of course, this is, this is, you know, you know, I won't, I won't enforce this. I won't, you know. Um, and yet we find field reports over and over all over the place where it actually was enforced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's hard to um, negotiate those two, those two realities that, you know, they have, you know, they, they claim uh, condemnation of it. Um, in some places you don't find, you know, in certain areas it wasn't enforced. And yet, well, I guess that was one case where he did um, hold the line. That was a, a line he wouldn't cross. But in other cases, one find it was. I don't think we can generalize. But just to be clear about what the, what the tribunal itself was expecting they would have anticipated that somebody acting according to the old rules, so to say, of military conduct would have simply stepped up and said, I refuse to conduct myself in a way that is in accordance with this order. I refuse this order because it is illegal. And right. do you know anyone who did that? Um, Herman Ho- um, uh, Wilhelm von Leib springs to mind. He was, uh, I mean, the case is named for him. He was the highest ranking defendant, and yet he was convicted of the least things. And they, they actually said at the end, you know, the, he was, they never could find a single criminal order that had his signature. He seemed never to have, of all of them, endorsed a single criminal order. Um, and I'm, you know, it's, it's funny how these defendants, they run together in my mind now. But I, something's telling me it was he, he was one where they could never prove that he had, um, you know, required that this order be be obeyed. Right. But, the, but the tribunal was expecting more. They were expecting people to resign their commissions over this. That's how someone could they have been were... exonerated. Just to resign your commission and saying, I'm sorry, I can't fulfill this order. I'm, I'm done. I don't know if they would have expected that. I think they, they, I mean, they certainly took the time to say, this is what you should have done. Yeah. So that, that's um, what I mean, really. Yeah. Yeah. That's what yeah. I mean. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They did. And, and, and I mean, there's, there's a section of the judgment where they said, you know, you have betrayed your own profession of yeah. arms by having lent your signature to this. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, even if, you know, you, you could not have changed the outcome, you know, that, you know, the machinery was bigger than you, the, the regime, the institution was bigger than you, you still had the power to withhold your consent and you didn't. Mm-hmm. And this was seen as, as particularly damaging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily have- in terms of the law, but... You know, as a statement about their sort of, you know, ethics and, and um, you know, overall conduct. Mm-hmm. No, I see. So let's talk about the Barbarossa jurisdiction order now. This one is less well known. What is its genesis and what did it say? The Barbarossa jurisdiction order, again, this was originated, you know, staff offices um, in Berlin. And the idea was to try and uh, come up with means to combat the um, partisan movement. So... You know, the war was fought between, you know, members of the both armies, Soviet army and, and um, German army, but civilians also took up arms uh, against uh, German forces. 
and and did so in great number and and unsurprisingly so given the ferocity with which the the Germans um, treated civilians and 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 conquered the East. Um, what this order did, and again it came through, it came through Valma. I think also Lehman. He was another um, officer in the legal department. Uh, he also had a hand in writing it. Um, the order, it's called the Barbarossa Jurisdiction Order. Barbarossa, Operation Barbarossa was the code name for the invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, Barbarossa Jurisdiction Order, because basically what it did was it allowed for the, you know, it extended the, the jurisdiction, sort of the, the power of uh, military personnel on the ground in the East that suspected partisans um, or real partisans did not have to uh, be put through sort of the traditional um, legal channels in order for their activities to be proven because it was a it was a, a point of international law that France allowed these you know illegal partisans you know not recognized belligerents could be killed in reprisal right they could be killed for these actions that was permitted um, but upon you know proof of their activities and so on so the Barbarossa jurisdiction removed that. Condition, and so on the you know decision of you know an order of this uh, an officer of this rank and higher you know suspects could simply be killed outright. Uh, it also removed from the German army the obligation to prosecute their own personnel, German personnel who committed crimes against uh, civilians. Mm-hmm. In practice, the order had the effect of unleashing. Um, you know the, the the fury on civilian populations that people could be killed. You know on the slightest pretext, and and you know in sort of proving this order and and how widespread its application was. There's um, field reports that that cite you know teenagers stealing bedsheets. You know were named partisans and and executed. That you know a woman sort of looked askew at a German officer and was shot. A family was accused of providing schnapps to partisans and they were killed, you know, father, mother, children. Um, and so what one saw in practice was it seemed to give cover to murders based on, you know, racial and political motivations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then uh, protected those who did those, carried out those crimes from prosecution from within their own um, their own ranks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, just to be very specific, I guess what it says is that uh, if what had been called excesses of some sort were committed against civilians, right, there was um, no obligation. There was no obligation to prosecute anybody. Right. Uh, right. What did the What did the officer corps say about this? Did, did anybody object to this order, or did they think of it? Um, as, you know, they think of it as something just wonderful because it freed their hands actually to fight these partisans or whomever they were fighting. Well, again, it's sort of a mixed bag. I mean, you see some people, um, you know, they sort of take the argument where, you know, if we, we are only going to encourage, <laughs> um, you know, perpetuate partisan activity by, by treating civilians like this because, you know, they, have nothing, they now have nothing to lose, so why shouldn't they? Um, but, again, it's sort of more from a, a self-serving perspective that, you know, we only are further endangering our people by, by inflaming partisan, you know, sympathies, that kind of thing. Um, you know, do, do you see anyone sort of welcoming it with open arms? I, I can't think of any instance where it did. Um, it, you know, the, uh, that's one 
that's sort of the frustrating thing about reading this trial. And I think, you know, perhaps it's been, you know, influenced by watching, you know, Law and Order on TV, where you have these, you know, moments of confession and breakthrough mm-hmm. and, you know, high drama in the courtroom. And, and what was, you know, endlessly frustrating to me is reading these these transcripts was these men, and they'd be confronted with, um, you know, insurmountable evidence of, you know, egregious crimes, uh, terrible atrocities, and yet still maintain this almost, you know, neutrality that, well, I, I knew about this order, but I, I certainly never allowed it to be uh, carried out in my in my area of command. And, you know, my my concern was always the discipline of my troops. Why would I allow them to, you know, run roughshod over? This would have been counterproductive to my, you know, resorting to these kinds of excuses without ever really addressing the moral issue at the core of them. Yeah. Um, and so it's very hard to get a sense of how they felt about them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it was a trial. They were on trial and, and you know, per, perhaps still thought that they were on trial for their lives. I mean, beyond the, the first trial at Nuremberg, no military man was executed mm-hmm. um, by uh, the Americans for, you know, whatever crimes. But, you know, at that moment, they might have still thought this was a possibility. Mm-hmm. And so we have to remember that that's in their minds when they're defending themselves. And so, of course, they would say anything to deny any connection to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what arguments did they use to defend themselves? Oh, I know there are a lot of them, but again, if you could summarize of sort of the I basic can summarize, arguments. I mean, um, the, you couldn't have under. I mean, you sort of speaking to the prosecution, you weren't in the East. You didn't under. You can't possibly understand how awful it was. Um, and, you know, different conditions required different conduct. And, you know, who are you to sit in judgment of us? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the, especially um, with regard to the Soviets, the Soviets did it as well. You know, the Soviets tortured POWs, the Soviets killed POWs, the Soviets, you know. Um, and so, tit for tat, you know, mm-hmm. ignoring the chronology of things that, in fact, well, yeah, but you started all these policies first, mm-hmm. and these were in place far be- you know, ahead of uh, the actual outbreak of hostilities. This was never acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that well, you know, absolute denial. I didn't know about that. I didn't know the Anzus group were shooting Jews. I didn't know that Soviets were dying, you know, at a rate of 80% in the camps in my area. I didn't know that uh, these people would be, you know, um, if I sent these people to Auschwitz, that they would be killed there. You know, denial to a level that just you know, boggles the mind. Um, also, they quit the, at the evidence. They said, you know, in fact, I did. I did protest this order, but I couldn't make that protest public. I couldn't make a record of that protest because then I might be punished. Or um, I falsified evidence. So when they were confronted, you know, these reports that so you know this many com- commissars were killed, you know, at this time in this area where you were. Well, we that was a falsification. We we invented that report in order to convince our superiors that we were carrying out the orders, which we of course recognized were criminal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, it was all I mean, it was it was weak. We were beholden to our superiors. We could not disobey these orders. On the other hand, we did disobey these orders, but we just couldn't make a record of it. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, I knew about this, but I, you know, I announced the order. But then and there's a you know written record of that. But privately to my officers, I said, yes, we won't carry that order out. But I didn't make a record of that. And mm-hmm. then there's what order? I never heard of that order. Mm-hmm. So and the same person would make these, you know, mutually exclusive claims mm-hmm. over the course of the trial. And so um, it, it wasn't nearly as it wasn't at all coherent or internally consistent. Mm-hmm. So the tribunal itself, one of the things I was interested to learn in your book, uh, 
showed a certain amount of subtlety in rendering judgment against these people. They did. They didn't just sort of throw them all out or put them all up against the wall. No, they actually seemed to have thought deeply didn't. about these things. They did. They truly, truly did. And, I, you know, I, I credit uh, to them, really, because I think it would have been very easy uh, given the mountains of evidence and sort of, you know, the whole, you <laughs> can just sort of say the entire East was awash in, in criminality and atrocity. But um, they, they said no. I mean, they, they and, and I think they, they took very seriously the fact that, you know, these trials, as much as they were designed to to adjudicate the criminality of these individuals, these trials would have an afterlife. And, you know, being at the beginning of you know, the, the formalization of international criminal law as we know it now, um, they wanted this trial to, you know, stand the test of time, to be something that could be looked at as a precedent. And so they were very um, uh, exacting in their demands about um, evidence. And, and uh, you know, one could not infer criminality just because, you know, crime was occurring all around this one particular mm-hmm. defendant. That didn't necessarily mean he himself was also criminal. They looked for direct connection between the defendant and, you know, whichever crime they were deciding about or or identififul, identifiable moments of omission mm-hmm. where, you know, this person had a duty to intervene against this and did not. And we can, you know, sort of give a time and place. And so, and even, you know, the, or the, something like the Barbarossa jurisdiction order, which, you know, someone like you or I reading it would just think, Oh, good God. I mean, there's absolutely no way this can't, you know, but be criminal. And yet this is, well, in fact, when you look at, you know, the laws around treating partisans and things, you know, the the law is still hazy on this, that there is a certain degree within the law uh, that allows for reprisals of partisans. And so they said, well, so we can't, you know, outright declare this order as criminal. It's more its application. If, you know, this defendant introduced this order into the chain of command and then did nothing to constrain it to you know, apply it within reason, within reasonable limits, then we can say he acted criminally. Mm-hmm. But simply to have um, passed this order on was not in and of itself. As much as, as reprehensible as it might have been, as, you know, as much as it sort of opens the door to potential abuses, um, that in and of itself, um, we cannot say with certainty was criminal. And so, you know, I think... Too. And, you know, people say, oh, Nuremberg, you know, Victor's justice, and, and sort of dismiss it. Well, I mean, this comes from not having read the record, because when you look at the differences between the prosecution's case, the scope of their case, the, you know, the amount of evidence they wished uh, to put on record versus what the tribunal actually decided and confirmed, it's often a very much more constrained, much more complex and nuanced um, um, examination analysis. So what sorts of um, penalties were meted out? Uh, prison sentences. Mm-hmm. Uh, two defendants were acquitted outright. There, there were representatives. The Wehrmacht re- refers to all of all branches of the armed forces, the Navy, the military, and um, the Navy, the Army, and the Air Force. The trial really in practice was about the behavior of, of the Army, the conduct of the Army, but they did have representatives, one of the Air Force, one of uh, the Navy. But the trial, it always struck me that they were there more for show, more just to sort of round out the picture of this is a trial of the Fairmouth. But the cases against them were always far weaker and, and didn't have the same prominence as the cases against other defendants. So they were acquitted. Um, and uh, for the rest of them, the um, the sentences ranged from time already served. Von Leib, who I mentioned before, they only were able, he was only ever found guilty of having um, 
passed on the Barbarossa jurisdiction order without safeguarding against its exploitation or its abuse, right? Mm-hmm. But no other order was found to be able to be attached to him. Um, so he was released with time served. The other ones ranged, you know, from a few years to, to life in prison. Um, as it turned out, all of them had served much shorter terms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that, actually. Um, one of the things that, again, I found fascinating in your book was the amount of sympathy that these gentlemen had uh, within the German populace and the fact right. that, uh, that, that people in that population uh, mounted successful campaigns to get them basically released early. Right, Maybe right. you could tell that story very briefly. Um, well, I mean... <laughs> The officer corps was a revered institution, and and it was a it was an institution that preceded Hitler. I mean, the officer corps always enjoyed a great amount of, of prestige and respect within German society. So there was a certain loyalty that persisted even after the Second World War among the population towards these men. Uh, but more importantly, um, it was it was sort of the political complications wrought by the the Cold War that ended up undoing all the work of the High Command case. And what I mean by that is. As much as the the Americans sort of set themselves this agenda of of punishing, um, you know, these representatives of the Nazi state and and pressing the lessons of these trials home to the German public, sort of acting as you know the executor of of um, Allied justice and you know a, a punisher of these representatives, they also had to tread lightly because they very quickly realized as as soon as the East West tensions mounted that they needed West Germany to be on their side to support the defense of the West and not just, you know, the the continent, but sort of in a larger sense. And Adenauer, the, the Chancellor of West Germany, recognized, you know, this is a, a political opportunity. Um, you know, now you need us. And so from very early on, he said, you know, if you expect us to rebuild our military, you can't also continue to hold our officers in prison. Um, and then use this very explicitly, you know, if you want our cooperation in Western defense plans, if down the line you want a German army, it's a West German army um, as a, you know, a distinct, you know, institution. There were talks early on about simply integrating German forces in a supranational army, but this went back and forth. But very explicit, you know, we will not stand for the continued, as they said, you know, debasement of our armed forces. I mean, and again, it goes down to never having accepted the judgment of the trial, never accepting the fact that, yes, the Wehrmacht did um, not just participate in, in crimes that we can now see were, you know, political or racial motivation, but actually we can identify they agreed with the ideology itself mm-hmm. right? that they that they were instrumental in not just planning this but um in carrying it out they never did accept that such a large segment of their population uh was involved in these kinds of crimes and and to that degree and so um you know they could more forcefully you know so it just it carried up and they wouldn't accept the continued imprisonment of their mm-hmm of their, you know, representatives of the institution. And so they used this, the the Americans' desire to have uh, West German military support in order to pry these uh, convicts loose from their custody. Mm-hmm. I see. So we said early on in the interview that the didactic purpose of the trials was not achieved. Um, what sort of impression developed of the Wehrmacht activity in the East after the war among the German cognoscenti. What did they think about the Wehrmacht and the crimes in the East? Um, well, that, you know, they 
conducted themselves in a way that was you know, no worse than any other participant in the war, uh, that the Soviets were just as bad, if not worse, um, that alternatively that, that the Wehrmacht was a victim of Hitler, that had, you know, their uh, values of honor and loyalty and patriotism had been um, perverted and exploited by, by Hitler, and that um, they you know, sort of co-opted into this conflict. But, you know, we did not fight for Hitler's Germany. We were fighting for the Germany of history and for the Germany, you know, that preceded Hitler. And it was their national duty to do so, even under Hitler's command, in order to preserve um, Germany as a nation. Um, But, you know, it all gets summed up in this, uh, you know, the myth of the clean hands of the Wehrmacht, this idea that, you know, they conducted, it was the SS that committed crimes, it was these other state, you know, police organizations and things that committed crimes against civilians, against Jews, but the army fought the war like any other professional army does and deserves no, you know, uh, particular condemnation or, um, or, or criticism for uh, its its participation conduct in the war um and this i mean this really was the general line to the extent that it was even discussed at all um there were moments i mean there were it was started with uh, german historians they started publishing in the 1960s about a generation after where they you know things like about the commissar order the one of the key pieces of evidence in the auschwitz trial which was mid 60s in frankfurt was a report on the commissar order Right, and so we started to see uh, glimpses where, you know, historians making this connection between Nazi ideology and the actual prosecution of the war and Wehrmacht's behavior. But it really was um, a discussion among scholars, among the general public. They, they, they clung tenaciously to this idea that, that the, you know, the unblemished Wehrmacht, that our sons, our fathers, our brothers, our uncles, our husbands had no part of these awful crimes. And it wasn't until the mid-1990s when um, a research institute in Hamburg um, mounted a public exhibition, an exhibition designed to travel around German Austria uh, documenting the crimes of the army in the East that this exploded in uh, the public forum. I mean, radio, the press, um, the German parliament started confronting these issues again. And, and what started off, I mean, in some places it was sort of a quiet, a sad um, sort of contemplation of these things. In other places, the, the reaction was, was violent. I mean, there was the exhibition site was firebombed in Saarbrück, and there were, you know, loud protests in Munich and Dresden, that kind of thing. But over time, it's sort of this, you know, this anger and, and, and rage over this, how dare you besmirch the good name of the Wehrmacht? How dare you impugn the memory of my father, who, you know, only was drafted in this war, had no choice in the matter, and fought it honorably as any other soldier would. Um, this sort of gave way to it. I mean, the, the weight of evidence was simply too great to ignore. And I think enough time had passed that, you know, the people bearing the brunt of that um, acceptance or recognition were far enough removed that they could do that with with a smaller degree of sort of personal um what you say con- you know personal conflict personal um investment what what let me ask a quick question I'm, i doubt that you can answer this but, but just in case what are german <laughs> school children taught about this 
Um, that's a, that's a very good question. I can't say that I I do know exactly. I mean, they've been you know, and I talk a little bit about this in the book that you know you have this perpetually you know, this ongoing uh, refusal to admit you know the broad-based participation in crime, and I mean, the, you know, the participation of the army, because it's the army that represents the largest segment of the population. So, you know, this persists right up, you know, from the time of the trial right up until the 1990s, and yet, starting, you know, after 1968, so, you know, the protests, you know, that, that generation that sort of comes of age and starts questioning its parents, you know, what did you do in the war? And these, you know, these discussions start to happen about the Holocaust and about, you know, crimes against other quote-unquote racial political enemies mm-hmm. um, you know this stuff starts to come out I mean the um, German admission of, of responsibility Willie Brandt kneeling at the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial in contrition um, you know paying reparations to Israel so I mean these things were all uh, they were taught in school school children would go on field trips to you know concentration camp memorial sites these kinds of things and yet it doesn't necessarily connect with um, justice or with, um, uh, you, know, ident- you know, there were crimes but not criminals, that kind of thing. You know, since the 1990s has, has this, you know, curriculum also, I mean, so as much as, you know, the Holocaust and things started to be, you know, taught uh, very openly in the schools, whether after the 1990s uh, controversy over the exhibition, if, you know, the, the role of Wehrmacht was also added to this curriculum, I don't actually know. That would be a really interesting thing yeah, to, to investigate. But, uh, you know, I would imagine it sort of falls in with, with the general literature. I mean, it, it seems like this is now something that has, this myth has, is something that has been overcome and sort of progressed behind it. And there's a, a better alignment between scholarship and, and public imagination, the public understanding of these events. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer to the question either. I, just, I did think it was kind of uh, interesting as well. Well, um, mm-hmm. Valerie, you've taken up a lot of your time and I really appreciate it. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Let me ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now? What I'm working on now is um, building on my work on Nuremberg and, again, getting at this uh, question of the social utility of trials, but then applying that question to the uh, Rwandan context. So um, looking at, you know, the Rwanda has taken on you know, various different legal mechanisms in order to work through um, uh their own experience of genocide, but there's a, the formal, you know, traditional court um, uh, process. You know, we'd all be familiar with national courts, but um, more important for my purposes, the, this um, they've initiated um, the system of Pichacha tribunals. This is drawing on a on a indigenous uh, ritual for community healing, where people come together um, as a community here testimony from victims, from witnesses, and from perpetrators, and then decide as a community on punishment. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, you know, Gachacha and Nerva, they, they offer such striking uh, differences in an approach to, you know, a traumatic history that, you know, whereas Nuremberg was the, sort of the formal, you know, judges in robes and trained legal counsel and defendant's box and sort of trying to fit in with, you know, formal, familiar uh, legal traditions, um, 
and but then all but then absolutely failing to com- to connect in a meaningful way with the community that they were intended to serve mm-hmm. and then you know at the other end of the spectrum these gachacha tribunals which are still interested in in punishment but by doing this sort of from a more grassroots um um you know less formalized uh, approach and mm-hmm. so my next book is is looking at sort of trying to figure out if there is a model that better serves, um, you know, community interests, you know, societies that are trying to recover from traumatic past, if, if the law still has anything to offer us in, in helping us um, recover um, from, mm. from those experiences. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project, and I wish you luck on it. Uh, let me say thank you again for being on the show. We've been talking to Valerie Haber about uh, her book, Hitler's Generals on Trial, The Last War Crimes Tribunal at Nuremberg. Valerie, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you very, very much. It was uh, my pleasure. Absolutely. My pleasure, too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Valerie Haber about her new book, Hitler's Generals on Trial, The Last War Crimes Tribunal at Nuremberg. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.